uh, do you know the difference between exegesis and eisegesis? Well, as I was preparing for this sermon, not that you would be interested in how a preacher prepares a sermon, but you look at commentators, you study the original languages, you look into the context of the scriptures, you try to, sometimes you listen to other ministers, the Tim Kellers, the John Pipers, the Matt Chandlers, and you listen and take a shortcut, the homework that they've done, the prayer work that they've done. But eisegesis is when you approach God's word and you read into it for your own agenda. Exegesis is where you read out of it for God's agenda, for God's word to you. This last week, I've heard it once, I've heard it a dozen times, uh, that Jesus was a refugee. And when challenged, they would go to, out of Egypt, I have called my son. When Jesus fled to, well, not fled, but when he was led by God through his father Joseph to escape the slaughter of Herod to Egypt. That's eisegesis. Now, I'm not debating that Jesus did leave Bethlehem and go into a foreign country in Egypt. But to take a, a small text and to use it for your own personal opinion um, is not exegesis. What's the point? When I first approached the scripture, I was doing eisegesis. I believed that it was talking about the unity of two rivers. It was talking about the unity and how to pray for the unity of us as a body, as a family, as a church. But that is not, that's not exegetically the point that Jesus is praying. He's praying for unity, but it's not the unity of the body. He's not praying for unity with one another, though that's certainly a consequence of unity. Who is he praying unity for? He's praying unity for each one of his disciples with the Trinity, with him and the Father. That's, as was just read, that's the I in you and you in them and they in me. And he's saying, Look at it individually. My prayer is for you individually, not simply collectively. Now again, the unity of two rivers is going to be a consequence if we're in unity with God the Father, even as Jesus Christ is. But this is not a sermon about church unity. It's a sermon about a disciple's unity with the Father. So think for a moment of two mind-blowing, breathtaking truths in this passage and prayer of Jesus as we prepare to make some observations. And remember that Jesus doesn't pray like we pray. Um, if you really want to know a man's faith and passion and his theology, his knowledge of God, overhear him praying. And we in John 17 have been overhearing in the upper room Jesus praying. 
He doesn't pray mechanically. He's not praying religiously. He's not praying coldly. This is important. This is his passion. We can, we can almost hear a plea in this prayer between Jesus and his heavenly Father. So back to the two breathtakers. First of all, he's praying for you. The Scottish theologian and preacher William Barclay says, now his prayers take a sweep into the distant future, and he prays for those who in distant lands and far-off ages will also enter the Christian faith. This passage should be specially precious to us, for it is Jesus' prayer for us. Your name was in his mind when he prayed 2,000 years ago in that upper room. It is absolutely breathtaking, mind-blowing, heart-stopping when you consider that. It's a, it's a great, great truth. It's more than sweet. It's powerful. Secondly, notice what Jesus asked for you. This is the second breathtaking observation. That you and I and all, as it says, who will believe in me will be one even as we are one. Verse 22. More than my heart can take is his prayer to be where we are and we where he is in the personal relationship of eternal love, eternal fellowship, and the experience of the eternal power visited to us through the Trinity and the fellowship that we have in a loving relationship with the Trinity. When you're, um, there are times when Wendy will walk into a room when Emerson is uh, in our home and I will, having not seen her for a bit, I will go over to her and I'll give her a hug, standing up, a hug. Emerson Nothing will do except she comes and wedges herself in between us for a group hug. She doesn't want to be kept outside of that circle, even on the bubble. She wants to be right in there so we all hug together. And though it sounds gross and sloppy, when I kiss Wendy then, give her a hug and a kiss, Emerson wants to be up there in that kiss so that three, three lips, three set of lips are merging together in a kiss. Let me try to put it succinctly. Jesus prays that the Father will love you no less, not a penny worth less, than He loves the Son. Breathtaking. Breathtaking. As Steve Brown used to say, if that doesn't start to fire your heart up, then your wood's wet. God the Father, in this prayer, is being requested by Jesus that there be no difference, not a shade, of the love that he has for the Son than he would have for each of those disciples and the disciples in future ages who will come to believe in him. Breathtaking. Now, this requires a supernatural act where we are born again. 
where we move from mere mortals in the flesh into eternal sons and daughters of God. It's called the doctrine of both election and adoption, where we are called into a relationship before we were born. Jesus prays for you before you were born. Ephesians 1, before the very foundation of the world, you were on His mind. You were God's plan and design for His family. He called you before you were even born by name. Then, you were born again into a relationship of sonship with God as your Father, and this makes Jesus Christ your older brother. Not simply your Savior and Lord, but an intimate family member. God calls us by name. He adopts us into the family. Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Please observe there in verse 15, the capital S for spirit of adoption. There's two spirits. Capital S spirit is the Holy Spirit. Small s is the spirit within me, sometimes called the heart. The 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 id, as it were, the, the me, the real me beneath all those layers. We have the Holy Spirit of God inside of us, and He teaches us, it says, to cry out, Abba, Father. Translated, cry is to pray. So, Paul is saying here that we have the Spirit in of God in us that leads us to pray. And as we pray, we're praying our very sonship. We're praying with confidence. We're praying not simply for needs, but we're praying for the strengthening of the oneness and the unity with the Father's love that is promised to us. This prayer of John 17 is answered every time you pray, my Father who art in heaven. This prayer that he would be your father and intimate in a loving relationship is answered when you pray, pray with confidence and you pray as a son and a daughter and not an orphan. And note, it's not a second-class family membership where the adopted child is always the stepchild without the full love of father to the firstborn son. Note that it says in verse 17 of Romans 8, this heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, 
The word for fellow heirs with Christ may appear in your Bible, if you have an NASB, joint heirs. It's not sub-heir. It's not his inheritance is large and yours is small. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, the term is used again when it comes to a husband and wife. And Peter says, husbands, love, honor, be intimate with your wife. Don't, don't subjugate them to be second-class citizens, for do you not know that they are heirs along with you of the grace of life? In other words, there's no difference. The Father sees you both the same. Time does not permit me to look at the example of this action in Luke 15 where the Father takes from the firstborn son, think of Jesus, wealth, and he spends it in lavish love on the returning prodigal who had spent his inheritance. Jesus is the true older brother, and not only does he not resent sharing his wealth and inheritance, but he prays for it. This wealth that Jesus shares with us are his riches of his glory. If you look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, Paul, I believe Paul is praying parallel to Jesus in John 17. Now the language is much, much more dense. It's not... Father, make them one as I am one, as much as it is, Lord, open their eyes that they may see the oneness that they have. He's talking to Ephesian believers. He's not talking to unbelievers. In other words, you can be a believer and not experience this oneness with the Father. It's a very miserable existence and your joy is not complete. And Paul prays, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Can I walk you very quickly through this treasure house? I just want to point out, as if it were on the shelf, the wealth of His glory that has been given to you, and it's continually given to you. As it says in 1 John, I mean the, the Gospel of John, the first chapter, that we have seen the glory of God in Jesus Christ, and He continues to lavish grace upon us. Grace upon grace upon grace. The treasures in this house, I just want you to see them. I can't pick them up, I can't explain them all, we can't explore them all. We can't use them all at this at this juncture, 
but I just want to label them for you. Verse 16 here of Ephesians 3. You have received the glory. This is, Jesus Christ has said in John 17, Father, I've given them, I've given them glory. I've given them my glory. But there's another glory that I want them to have, and that is to see me in all of my glory. Verse 16, here's one of the glories that you've been given. Strength in the inner being. The strength that you have inside of you is a glory given. It's a great prize. It's like a huge sword of strength. And on that sword is called spirit. It keeps my heart aflame and afire for him. Verse 17, Christ dwelling in my heart. I would point out in this treasure house, there's the, there's the marble and the, the, the gopher wood and the teak and, and the crystals and and everything to go into building this dwelling in your heart where Christ may richly dwell. Verses 18 and 19, comprehension of breadth, length, height, depth of love of Christ. This is the library of leather-bound books. And what a readable treasure they are that we can read. And along with other brothers and sisters, we can begin to, to comprehend, wow, this love is deep and wide and high. And then verse 19, fullness of God filling me up. That is a glory given to you. That is a glory that Christ prays for. That's the, that's the pantry of this treasure house where we go in and we see the aged wine, the aged cheese, the, the meat that we can take of and be full of God. Matthew 5 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God, for they will be satisfied. And even now in this life, we're feeling satisfaction when we feast on the bread, when we drink of the water of life, when we take of the communion wine and broken bread that He serves us as a supper and a feast. This is Paul's prayer for Ephesians. Now you may ask before I leave this, now, Exactly what is this glory that he's given to me? Well, the Westminster Divines in the longer, larger catechism answered it this way. They called it communion with glory. What is the communion in glory with Christ which the members of the church enjoy in this life? They enjoy the sense of God's love. Do you have that? A peace of conscience and a joy in the Holy Ghost and a hope within of promised future glory with Him. And it says, just to be clear, on the contrary, on the other side, if you don't have this communion in glory, if His glory has not been given to you or you're not experiencing it, then you will have a sense of God's revenging wrath. You will have a horror of conscience and you will have a fearful expectation of the future before the face of God. Do you look forward to the face of God or do you dread it? 
do you regularly experience being overwhelmed and comprehending His love for you? That's seeing His glory, and that's a taste of His glory. Jesus nor Paul were satisfied with disciples who knew about the love of Jesus, the love of God and His design for their salvation and their adoption, and the plan to dwell with them in all eternity. And that visited on our heart and reminded us by the Holy Spirit, they would have nothing to do with simply mere theological knowledge. They wanted and prayed, and I believe pled with God, may they experience it. Not simply the head, but the heart. So, Jesus is praying. And he's praying for you. And he's praying those two specific things. He's praying for you to be one in your love relationship. One with the Father in that God loves you. You know that God loves you no less than he does his son. And that you see how loving the Son is that, such that He should pray that we be included to experience that love. But then secondly, He prays for them to receive additional glory. He prays for them here. He says in verse uh, 24, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. 1 John chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 say, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Don't get lost in the forest. Focus on the word fellowship. And we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. John is saying that disciples, followers of Christ, loved by Him, now have an intimate fellowship with the Trinity, with the Father, with the Son, and through the Holy Spirit. What does your fellowship with the Father and the Son look like? It's reflected in your prayer life. It's reflected in how you pray. This fellowship that you have, this experience, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. But when, now Paul borrows a page from the life and biography of Moses. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So we see Moses turning to the Lord. We read in the Old Testament that he frequently went, either by God's invitation to speak with him, or he went on his own, he went either to the top of the mountain or he went into the tabernacle to be intimately in fellowship alone 
with the Lord. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is a different prayer than many of us are accustomed to. He turns to have a conversation with God. And prayer is most basically defined as a conversation with God. Not a monologue, but a conversation where we speak to God and God speaks to us. And he speaks as he says here, the veil is lifted. Moses' own sin would keep him from seeing the face of God. He must be put in a cleft of a rock so that the glory, the face of God, the fullness of God could pass by. But that veil is removed. All barriers because of the work of Jesus Christ are removed. There is nothing now that can impede us from seeing more and more and more the face of God and His glory as revealed in the person of of Jesus Christ. This changes prayer. This changes my prayer from no longer a list of petitions where I'm focused on the outcome. Is it answered yet? No, it's not answered. Keep going, keep going. I don't know. God's quiet. I don't know what's happening there. It changes it from focusing on prayer as a list of petitions and focusing on the outcome to simply focusing on oneness with the Father. It focuses on enjoying the Father. It's like my, my friend, now deceased, Jack Miller, who used to say his prayer time in the morning, he called it meeting with the Father in the morning. And having prayed with him, Jack never had a long, he had some petitions, but he spent the majority of his time just, oh, enjoying his father and enjoying his sonship with the father. Now this time of fellowship is where we do our prayer and where we meditate on the glory, where we, we dial in the face of Christ. Not so much a physical face, but the, the face of His life and His work on our behalf. We see Him on the cross, bearing great wounds in our place, but desiring to do so, to win us. He is our great hero. He has conquered sin. We see that and we're moved by His love. We behold His glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, Paul prays for us to have a spirit of wisdom, revelation, eyes of our heart enlightened, that we can see and know the very riches of His glory. A way to pray is like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you struggle in your prayer life, 
Or if you find that you're facing particular hardships at this time, if you find that there is a way before you and it is scary, maybe unclear and cloudy, and you're being led into something that's like Peter being invited to step out on the water, this is pure gold. Pray this, Father, by the Holy Spirit, just like that Holy Spirit hovered over the chaos and darkness of the world before it was created, and you said, boom, let there be light. Shine a light on Jesus Christ that I may see Him more clearly and see Him more dearly. And seeing Him, I will, that, is the, that will be the greatest joy and it will strengthen me in the inner man because I now know that I face nothing apart from Him. Nothing. That's what Moses prayed. He said, Lord, I am so exhausted, I can't go any further. If I could just see you, I would be strengthened. And so God revealed Himself. God will answer that prayer. John Owen argues that no one will ever behold the glory of Christ by sight hereafter who does not in some measure behold it by faith in this world. You believe that? John Owen was one of my favorite Puritan theologians. He's very verbose. But let me repeat this. No one will ever behold the glory of Christ in the hereafter if you're not beholding in some measure the glory of Christ by faith now. Man, this is perplexing. I mean, this has challenged me all week. This raises the stakes on prayer to a very high level. To behold the glory of Jesus means that we find Christ beautiful for who He is in Himself. It means a kind of prayer that we're not simply coming to Him to get forgiveness. We're not coming to Him simply to get help. And we're not coming for Him to bless us. We're going to Him for Him. We're not looking to Him as a gift giver. We're not looking perhaps even for an answer to prayer. We're looking to see Him in all of His radiance and His glory and His beauty. Rather, praying like that, Jesus captures my imagination. He begins to fire up my heart with his beauty. I'll die for that one. He reveals God to me. And I know I'm on God's side. More than that, I'm a son. And it makes me long to be with him. And it makes me long to never be separated in my walk with Him. It fires up my obedience. I'll follow Him. I'll walk with Him and dare anything that separates me from Him, the Father. That's what I'm asking for us to pray for. To pray that we would see His glory. To pray that we would see Jesus 
as the Father sent Jesus. Jesus prayed for us to have such an intimacy with the Father that not only would we experience His love as He experiences it, but in loving the Father in return, we would love what He loves. Our hearts would be milled. Our loves are the same. What does the Father love? He loves His Son, Jesus. So what we're going to do this morning, uh, this, this prayer series has always, every Sunday, we end the message with an opportunity for us as a church to pray. And we've prayed in different manners. And this morning, we're going to, uh, Justin, oh, come on, Justin. You didn't want me to, do, you do not want me to lead us in song. But this morning, we're going to sing our prayer. Um, I have found myself this last week um, with certain songs, uh, a, a, a Christian song to come on the radio or, or to come up on a, a, a podcast. I found myself saying, yes, Lord, that's my heart, that's my prayer, and just weeping. So we're going to sing this morning our prayer. And yes, while I really want to encourage you to make it your prayer individually, notice what it does. It unites us as a church. It unites us, son to daughter, brother to sister, as we are all brought freshly aware into the love of the Father and the very glory of Jesus Christ.